And um, we'll turn to the passage in a moment, but uh, it's on page 1235. The Lord has, has given us his presence, his power. Others talk about his assurance. Um, for two, two things, really, uh, well, many, but you can uh, break them down to two. One is that we would be used by him to grow his kingdom. That un- with the power of the Spirit, with the authority that he was given from the Father he now gives to us, we would be able to grow the kingdom by preaching the good news and also by praying for his kingdom to break in. That's one of the main things that we see in Acts that the Holy Spirit uh, enables believers, followers of Jesus to do. The second thing that the Holy Spirit enables us to do, and that God by His grace enables us to do, is that uh, when um, prayers go unanswered, when horrible things happen, when tragedy strikes, whether it's persecution, whether it's illness, whether it's unwanted redundancy, um, whether it, when it's just awful, when the awfulness of life happens, God by his spirit is there to enable us to hold on. To hold on. So that even though life has thrown uh, the worst at us, we can still hold on to Jesus in the midst of it. And so that's what we're going to look at. And that's the message to this church in Revelation, uh, in Thyatira, with a few slight nuances to it. And that, I believe, is the message for us this morning. So with that, let's turn to uh, page 1,235. And that's the, uh, the message to the church in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give the morning star. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Let me pray. Father in heaven, come by your spirit. And would you pour your hope and your spirit into our hearts that we might be strengthened in our faith. Amen. I love that image behind me. I don't know about you. I have no desire ever to skydive. Because the scriptures say, lo, I'm with you always. You know, so uh, anyway. It's taken me nine years to get a laugh like that out of you. Anyway. But it's a sense, isn't there, when, when, when the, 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 uh, the, there are times when it feels like we're falling in free fall and there's nothing left for us to do but hold on. Sometimes that's because we're in the middle of an, a crazy adventure. Other times it's because uh, the unthinkable has happened. And there are two things. Well, they're, they're obviously, uh, the Lord says lots of the Bible. But pertinent to our passage this morning... There's an incredible theme that goes through, this message that God speaks to his people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, now here at the end, which is very simply this, I know, I know, hold on, I know, hold on. They're there in verses 19 and 25. And often, this is what we need to hear most. We need to know that, you know, God, he's with us. Even though we can't see it, even though our hearts are telling us one thing, we need to know that God is with us and the, the courage to hold on. Uh, some of you will know um, my tan is fading, but we did spend six weeks away from here um, and um, in, in a southern climate. Although I tell my parents who are in eastern Atlantic Canada that I've come to a warm island climate here in England because relatively it is. But anyway, we were in Florida, and it was incredible. Our first Sunday there, we went to this small church, and uh, we went forward for prayer every week that we were there, but we went forward, and I had my wife Rachel next to me. We both went up together, and uh, this person prayed for us and prayed for Rachel, and, you know, all that they kind of got out of their lips was, you know, the Lord knows. He's with you. And, you know, she really met with God, and that was so encouraging to see. And unlike the other letters in, in Revelation, especially the ones we saw last week, the message to the church this morning isn't one of repentance, which is a surprise. Instead, it's a message of hold on. Hold on to what you have until I come. This church was doing the stuff. Look down with me in verse, uh, verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like uh, burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than what you did at first. And so not only does Jesus commend them for their faith, but he commends them for their love and their hope. And it shows us that they had the kind of love that is, is kind of the, what we're aiming for as Christians. It's a love that puts where you put yourself after the needs of others. It's a love that is expressed in service. And that they had a faith that was filled with hope. So that as things were tough, they were able to persevere. And we heard last week that Ephesus was backsliding. Well, while Ephesus was backsliding, the church in Thyatira was moving forward. Ephesus had abandoned its first love. This church was abounding in love. 
In fact, they were exceeding the works they did at first because of love, the love they had. And so this church is doing really well. And so it's, it's a shame, really, to, to carry on and to read what their problem was. But this is their predicament. All is going well on the surface. But amidst the health, the vitality of this church, a cancer is growing, which will jeopardize, jeopardize the life of the church. And the problem is, is that while the church was loving and faithful and, and doing what you'd expect a church to do, a woman pretending to be a prophetess was teaching outrageous license. Now, there was absolutely no problem with a woman prophesying in church in that day. That wasn't the issue. The issue was more what she was, uh, what she was teaching. Now, Jezebel isn't that common a name here, um, but it, it isn't likely her real name, but rather a nickname given to her for what the influence she was having. The name, uh, directly translated, means pure or chaste. But the first Jezebel, the Jezebel we find in the Old Testament, was far from these things. She was a woman married to the king who sought to contaminate Israel. And the king lacked the moral conviction, the stamina, and the endurance to withstand her. And this Jezebel in this church is doing the exact same thing. She's laying claim to divine inspiration and was succeeding some people in the church to indulge in immoral practices. And she taught something along the lines of when you hit spiritual maturity like I have, what happens to your body doesn't affect your spirit because you reach a stage of enlightenment and your spirit is mature and and what happens to your body doesn't really matter. So he can worship on Sunday and do whatever he want the rest of the week. Now, here's the problem. Now, when I think of sexual, gross sexual morality or I think of food sacrifice to idols, to, on, to be honest with you, I think of in today's society, that's, those are rather fringe events. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the odd. Uh, only, you know, a few members of society would be involved in that. Uh, but though I might have that idea, it wasn't true there. These things were actually part of the mainstream culture of that day. And this is why. Uh, the city, Thyatira, was a very successful trading center. And as a result, it was because it was so well organized. And the way it was organized, I mean, archaeologists have found a number of inscriptions that tell us that uh, Thyatira was, uh, had a number of trade guilds. Okay, so if you were a baker, you were also a member of the Baker's Guild. If you were a cobbler and made shoes, you were part of the Cobbler's Guild. If you're a bronze worker, you were in the Bronze Worker's Guild, so on and so forth. Whatever profession you had, had its own guild. Not quite a union, but it's kind of a, you know, similar, but not, not quite the same. And the problem was that all of these guilds were dedicated to different pagan gods. And so you were expected to go to work but also go to these ceremonies that your guild would hold, uh, where you would worship idols, where you would eat food that was sacrificed to them, and many of them would end up um, as a kind of party where things would be done that you really shouldn't talk about in church, if you, if you see what I mean. Um, even Channel 5 wouldn't show some of this stuff, <laughs> right? And so imagine this, you become a Christian... You go to work, 
Whether you're a baker, you know, you make your hot cross buns, let them rise, prove twice, all that kind of stuff. But, and then the, 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 uh, the monthly guild ceremony comes up and you don't go. You would face incredible pressure not to go with what your culture expected you to do. These things were completely acceptable in the culture, but they were not in line with the teaching of the gospel. And so you had a lot of pressure to go against the tide of culture, to come to church, and then you find that there's someone claiming insight that is outside of the teaching of the Bible, saying that actually, once you're mature enough, you can do both, and it won't affect you spiritually. I don't know what kind of pressure you face today at work, whether, you know, this kind of thing happens today. But I know enough about our society today in England that there are some things that are completely acceptable socially that aren't in line with the teaching of Scripture. And I just wonder what that, you know, what they might be. And if we have inadvertently or intentionally crossed a few moral lines that we need to come back from. And so this new Jezebel was teaching that as a mature Christian, you could love Jesus, be at the center of worship, prophesy in church on a Sunday, and then go wild. Some followed her teaching, but the majority resisted it. And the problem, and this is the problem, is that nobody had challenged her. The problem is, is that the, this loving community didn't have the courage or something was missing that they didn't have the means to say, stop it, be quiet, and sit down. Leave. And this is going unchecked. And so Jesus speaks to them and their problem. And the whole point behind this is to put courage back into them. Literally, that means he's writing to them to encourage them. And the encouragement starts at the very beginning of his message. But when he says here in verse 18, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know. I know. In the other letters to the churches, the I know is an indictment. It's like, oh, we've been found out. But here it's, I know comes with a sense of assurance. That, oh, thank goodness. We've been praying and we just didn't, you know, I know comes and suddenly they know that God is with them. Jesus was giving them his assurance because it's very possible that the church itself didn't fully know what was happening behind locked doors. But Jesus knew. And that's why he introduces himself here as the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. All that to say that he is the one who sees in the dark. He's the one who knows the hearts and minds of everyone. In fact, if you look down in verse 23, bad news to Jezebel and her followers, but such good news to the believers. Verse 23, Jesus calls himself he who searches hearts and minds. And this became so apparent to the believers in Acts that they gave God a new name, and they called him the heart knower. He's the one who could read people's minds. And understand their hearts. And he knows it today. He knows the state of our heart. And he reads our minds. He's the only God who's the heart knower. And he's the only God who you'll never have to explain your heart to. Because he says, I know. I know. 
And it doesn't come with a sense of condemnation. It comes with a sense of knowing that brings with it an invitation into a relationship where you're fully accepted before you change. So the heart knower wants the Jezebel party to repent. They've had opportunity to do so, but they haven't done it yet. We don't know the details of this, but we do know that God is patient. We don't know how he spoke to Jezebel. We don't know how um, she said no. But we do know that he is patient and he doesn't want anyone to perish. But he wants everyone to come to belief in him, to have everlasting life. And the church is given this assurance of God being with them so that they might have the courage to silence her. You see, God's presence, the Holy Spirit, always gives birth to courage in the heart of the believer. Always gives birth to courage. But Jesus doesn't compel us to surrender. He doesn't force us to do anything. He doesn't forcibly break our will. In fact, it's the opposite. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's as if he says, come on, this isn't who you are. I know. This isn't who you are. I know you were meant for more than this. Come, follow me. If you've done Alpha, you've heard this quote by C.S. Lewis, who says, there are two types of people in this world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those for whom God says, your will be done. And if the final warning isn't heeded, he hands people over to bear the fruit of their own sowing. See, Jezebel had this wonderful opportunity that though she'd done some incredibly, the wickedest, if that's even a word, of wicked things, she could have had her wicked record of her life swapped for the perfect record of Jesus. So that on the day of judgment, she would be seen as perfect. And she refused it. And so Jesus has to hand her over to face the consequences for her actions, not wanting the intervention of Jesus. And we see this graphic depiction of what her punishment will be like. And we see that it will fit her crime. And that the scene of her wickedness will be the scene of her judgment. And I mean, just read it. I won't go any further, but it, it kind of speaks for itself. And then we come to a gem of a verse in verse 25. If you look down with me, it says, To those who have overcome, to those who have resisted, only hold on to what you have until I come. Only hold on. That's all that's expected. Hold on. Hold on. And in holding on, there are two promises that are made to the church who resist Jezebel's teaching. The first is that if they hold on, they will share in the authority of Jesus, as we see in verse 27. He's actually quoting Psalm 2. And interestingly enough, if you face pressure at work or in some area of your life to, uh, to deviate from the teaching of Scripture, to be involved in something that just it doesn't line up with this, and you're feeling that pressure, Psalm 2 is a great antidote to the soul. But to those who hold on to Jesus, those who hold on to his grace, those who hold on to the meaning of his death and resurrection, to those who t- hold on to Jesus' view of God, that he's not angry. But he's a good father, unlike any father we've ever had. To those who hold on to the promise of his spirit, to what his presence is for today, to them are given 
a share in the authority of Jesus. They will be able to speak in the name of Jesus and to see Jesus do the most amazing things, to see hearts of stone turn to hearts of flesh, to see relationships restored, to see hope reborn, to see people who have just been absolutely brutalized come back to life, to people for whom dignity's been stolen, to have beauty return to them, to have a share in his authority. And then there's this really interesting bit that goes on that I got really excited a bit for a while in verse 28. He also says, I will give those who resist the morning star. I was such a fan of medieval history, especially weaponry. And the morning star was this monster ball, spiked ball on a chain that knights would swirl around their head. And, you know, that's not at all what he's talking about. <laughs> but I had a moment where I thought it might be, right? I thought, wow, we get weapons, but no. Um, and here, here uh, John, who's writing on behalf of Jesus, becomes incredibly poetic. You see, because the church, the church around Universal at this time was being persecuted. They were being killed. They were being murdered for their faith. And when the enemy couldn't crush them, what he would do is encourage them um, to, to, to live a life of license. And in, amidst all this pressure, he says, I will give you the morning star. And essentially what he's saying is, hold on. And let your light shine. So that when I come, the light that you are holding on to will be swallowed up by the light of my glory. So he promises his authority and he promises a share in his glory. Which is such incredible good news. He gives us a spirit to extend the kingdom and he gives it to give us an assurance so that when we hold on, in difficult situations at work, difficult situation in relationships, when unanswered prayer comes, when, when, when horrible life circumstances hit us, he gives us his spirit so that in the midst of all of that, we can still worship God. He enables us to hold on in the mystery when the breakthrough doesn't come. So all this is said to Thyatira, and it's all said to us today. Jesus says, I know. He says to some, repent. It's not who you are. I know. You were meant for so much more than this. Just come, follow me. He says, hold on. Hold on. He says, I'll give you a share of my authority. And I will give you a share of my glory. Amazing. And I, I reckon there, there, we're probably in three categories here today. There might be one or two of us who, you know, we just know that actually we've overstepped a few lines. And we just need to come back. And it's really, and, and actually we might even think, I don't know if you've ever thought, like I've thought, that actually I know I've overstepped a line, but I can handle it. I can find my own way back, and that's just a lie. You can't. You need help. You need Jesus to, to bring you back. And he doesn't come in judgment to do that. He just comes in kindness and says, come on. You're more than this. That's not who you are. So that, that might be some of us. Some of us might really know that whatever it is we have, we haven't seen the fullness of the power of the Spirit enabling us to, to be a witness for him or to, to, to pray 
to pray for the sick that they might be healed, to pray for uh, situations that friends are in so that things could change, to pray so that we might see the impossible made possible because of who Jesus is and his resurrection. And there might be some of us who just need to hold on. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in us now so we just hold on. I'm going to suggest we pray for those three things. So why don't we stand?